0: Good morning. Not like I could hear y'all say good morning back. It's just one of those things that you do when you stand in front of an empty room with the camera on. Many highlights for me this week. Uh, Mike listed one, my wife's birthday. Me and the boys got to bless her yesterday and different things. D group Wednesday night. Had a great time with the brothers in my group. Many highlights this week. But one of them that I was surprised by that caught me off guard that became a source of joy for me this week was scrolling Facebook and seeing uh, this picture that Karen had put up with this young fella beside her. And it was our pastor, Mike Dixon, looking like the fourth singer of Guy up that joint. As soon as I saw that joint, I was like, Groove me. Oh, uh, yeah. I know some of y'all was thinking that too. I saw that, and I was like, good gosh. Mike out this joint looking like he getting ready to break out. And like, he going to be performing with Keith Sweat out in Delaware casinos or something, man. I, I love seeing that, man. I, what I love, though, so it was partly seeing Mike look like he was, you know, doing this thing back in the day. But it was also... <laughs> they ain't here laughing, but don't make me laugh. But the also, what I love seeing was that picture represented longevity. It represented perseverance, it represented faithfulness, and it represented God's ability to maintain and sustain their marriage for 30 years. So I know it's not the actual date yet, but you know, brother, I was encouraged by that, man. As one who's going on his 17th year, it was just encouraging to see you and also to know that you were doing that thing back in the day. Well, I know you was working it, so. Oh, man, that's, you know, we cannot exercise this morning. I should have had them sing some of that, some of that, that old God joint. I miss you. That's not my thing, though. All right. We are maintaining our, uh, we're still in Romans, we're doing our review. So this is sort of the the, the 15,000 feet review. Obviously, we're going to hit uh, a couple passages, and we're not going to, you know, I'm going to go into some, pull out of some, go into some, pull out of some, so this is not typically, if you are watching this for the first time or if you haven't been a part of us, this, this is just I am reviewing sermons that, and passages that we taught a while ago to get us back into the, the mindset of Romans, to get us back into the theology of Romans and to prepare us as we make our way to get to back to chapter 9, which will be when we'll pick off and we'll pick up and start teaching in smaller segments like Maybe first four verses and, you know, something like that. Right now, though, we're not going to zoom in like we would when we do that. We're going to hit, you know, something of broader range because we're trying to just remember. Remember where we were. Remember what was said. Get our, sort of wet our whistle to prepare for what's coming when we get to Romans chapter 9. We ended last week primarily on Romans 2.24 where the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And we took that and looked at how that can apply to the church even today, which I think is more significant than I even let on last week. Picking up where we left off in Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 25, and I'll read this. And I quote, Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is not is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Okay, so here we've, we've been on this sort of journey with Paul, right? So this is the end of chapter 2, and he's really making a point. And he's, he's, he's shown us at the end of Romans 1... 18 to 32, what many believe to be, which I believe is an accurate way to say, is the the sins of the Gentiles, those who who are not the chosen people of God, and he's walking through sort of how the world is the way that it is, and their sins are on display as those who have suppressed the truth and rejected even the general revelation of God. Not the special revelation, not, not the revelation given by the Holy Spirit, mind you, like when, when Jesus, when Peter said, who do people say that I am? And when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, and he said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the spirit did, right? So only the spirit makes people understand who Jesus is. But what Romans 1 is talking about is even from just general revelation, just the ability to look at the world and see the order in the world, the beauty in the world, people should walk away from thinking there is a God that created this and we should worship him, even if we didn't know his name. And he highlights the sins of the people who rejected to do that. But then he transitions to chapter 2. Some people, as I said last week, think it begins in verses 1 through 4 or 5. I think it begins later on in verse 17 when he says, Now you consider yourself a Jew, but that's neither here nor there. The reality is he is addressing the Jews and making sure that they are the people who, who have got the law of God, but they also need Jesus. You see, he recognizes where the Gentiles need Jesus, but he's also saying, the Jews, you need Jesus too because you break the law and prove that the circumcision that you have doesn't guarantee you salvation. You see, circumcision doesn't stop you from breaking the law. It was for a different purpose. You see, what he's trying to do in chapters one, two, and as we'll see in chapter three, there's a lot of theological Things we could pick out of this. We could go through and and pick out doctrines and doctrine of this and this. But what Paul is fundamentally after is creating a theology of identity. He wants to make sure everyone knows. So he begins, remember that in verses one through seven, he begins with, here's who I am. I'm Paul, an apostle. Here's who you are in verse seven of chapter one as saints chosen by God, loved by God, right? He wants to make sure that identity matters. Identity matters because it's fundamentally a part of being a human being. I don't know if, you know, even among animals, it matters. I I love, I watch a lot of nature stuff, and I've said this before, but I'm still blown away by this. I love watching this stuff where, like, you know, this lion is looking for his brother, and he's yelling, and he can't find his brother. And then all of a sudden, his brother comes out of nowhere, and they just jump up, and they hug each other, and, and it's like all the lions look the same. How do you know that's your brother? He looks like him too, the dude you was fighting with. So, but to them, they understand that's my brother. And there was affection, right? There was an identity there. I remember watching another one where there was a female lioness. she was hiding. She, was, she got lost from her, her pride. And she, was, she heard a bunch of lions and she was slowly walking up and she was peeking around the bushes. And the camera, I don't know how the cameraman do this. This is an amazing cameraman. I bet you they, I bet you they got it. That bitch, their health insurance is vicious. Because you can't work, you can't work around apex predators and have good health care. But anyway, so they were just, this lioness was hiding behind the bushes. And then when she realized, oh, those are my people, she came out and started to walk towards them. And then they saw her and they started running towards her. And I thought, well, how beautiful that is. Like from a distance, she could recognize that's my family. Like the way God created creatures, human beings and animals, creatures, is identity matters even to them. So if it matters to a lion or a bear or some other animal, then it matters to human beings because we are made in the image of God and identity matters. And so Paul is laying out a theology of identity because it's fundamental to being a human being. And the question of identity is not, who am I? The question of identity, biblically speaking, is who am I to God? Who am I to God? And now Paul is is wrapping up this this notion that the Jews' identity is actually in question. You see, all this time they thought, well, we're the Jews, we're the chosen people, so we're good. And Paul is like, no, nah, not really. Your identity is in question unless it's faith in Jesus Christ. But we're circumcised. But, ah, circumcision doesn't save you. Now, this is a big deal. If you're a Jew, if you're in the church hearing this letter read for the first time and you're Jewish, this is a big deal because the Jews have thousands of years of thinking circumcision is what separates us from the rest of the other nations, among other things. But that's one of the very things. They go back a long time ago To saying this. Now, there's no real one-to-one, but I've heard of people who've been adopted, who find out way later on in life that that wasn't your real mom and dad, that you're actually adopted. And they have been blown away by that. I've seen people's lives changed just finding out you're actually not who you thought you were. And and, and if you know the story, you know of people who find out, whoa, that's not my real mom and dad. I grew up my whole time and I found out that that's actually my aunt or that's my uncle or that's my grandparent and that's not my real mom and dad. And then you, it's it's just, it's just, it's crazy the impact it has so much so that sometimes those people go looking for their birth mom or birth dad. They want to know, what happened? Why didn't you keep me? What I need more. There's a piece of my identity missing. Well, imagine being told for thousands of years, this is what marks you as the people of God, and now you find out, not anymore. To these people, they go back to Genesis. They go back to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 9 Here's where their identity with circumcision comes into play. God is dealing with Abraham, and Abraham is the father of the faith, but particularly the father of the Jews, at least at this time, he was the father of the Israelite community because they all came from Abraham. And so in Genesis 17, here's what God says to Abraham. He says this, beginning of verse 9. God also said to Abraham, as for you and your offspring after you throughout the generation are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. So this is the contractual arrangement that I'm making with you, Abraham. As I'm going to be your God and you all are going to be circumcised. Every one of your males. You must, verse 11, you must circumcise in the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old, every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant, the irony of God. So if a man doesn't cut himself, he'll be cut off from God. This is fundamental to who they are. So here comes Jesus. Jesus shows up and basically says, look, the law that you've been living for, you can't keep. You can't obey it perfectly. And circumcision is not necessarily what saves you. It was well, God gave you favor by choosing you to be the nation he came out of. But Jesus comes and he lives, fulfills the law perfectly and then you find out, okay, all of the stuff that you believed and that you thought made you the people of God is no longer the same. So you don't sacrifice. You're not killing animals anymore for your sin. You have access to God. You don't have to go through a priest anymore. The curtain was torn in two in Mark 15 after Jesus died. You no longer have to circumcise yourself is to be marked as the people of God. Now with your faith in Jesus Christ, this was all too much for the Jews. It's like trying to tell me I'm not really black. Be like, huh? What color is this? All right, I'm not black like my hair, my shirt, but I'm... It's a paradigm shift. This was so significant to the early church and such a problem that in Acts 15... The the leaders of the church had to come and meet to discuss this issue because there was so much turmoil. Do the non-Jewish people, which are called the Gentiles, are they supposed to be circumcised or not? Because the Jewish people have been circumcised all, all, all this time. And if you know the story of Abraham, he was 90 years old and got circumcised. He was hurt for some time. This was a painful thing to do. Maybe not when you're eight years old, you don't remember it. But when you're older, you'll never forget it. This is a significant issue. So the leaders of the church come together, what we know is called the Jerusalem Council, and here's what Acts 15 tells us happened. Part of Acts 15 explains to us the significance of circumcision to the Jews that Paul is saying now no longer is the primary identity call for you. It's not the primary marker anymore. Here's what happens in Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on the way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. This important language. Some of the believers, these were believers in Jesus Christ who also thought they got to still be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. These are believers in Jesus Christ who had their theology wrong. And so they're contending that, listen, if they're to be saved, they they have to do this. And you know, in much smaller ways, it's the same way in the church today. If you're from one side of it, you have to care about racism to be a Christian. If you're on the other side, abortion has to be your main issue to be a Christian. Both are wrong. So it goes on, and says this. The apostles and the elders gathered to, to consider the matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers... You are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel, message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear so far? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. So you see, this is, he calls it a yoke. He understands that, listen, they can't keep this. We couldn't keep it. Our ancestors can't keep it. And by that, he understood the, to, to the yoke of the law of Moses is you got to live it perfectly. Once you sin one time, it's a wrap. It's over. You're disqualified from being able to do it. This has, there's no real standard that you can keep. But I remember I used to go to like carnivals or like Kings of and And they, they would have like these basketball nets, these basketball hoops. And there would be like these huge stuffed animals you could win. And I don't look like it, but I played ball though. I was swift. I was quick. I was, I was all right with it. And so I would walk up to these things and be like, hey man, how much, how much for that? And it would be like $7, $10. I'd be like, Dad, how many shots do I get? One shot. You get one shot. And I'd be like, man, I can make my kids. would be like, puppy, I want that. You know, you think, man, I'm going to do this for my kid. I get up there and me take my jacket off, hold my jacket. You know, I'm like, this, we're going to do this. Get the ball, feel it out a little bit, act like I'm, you know, Michael Jordan with a dribble, you know, spin it up, take my shot perfect for him, Steph Curry, like hit the rim. Boom, 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 pop out. Like, hold up, man. I could miss a shot, but something. Hey, man, let me get one more. For another $7. This is for my kid, though. I thought. First, it was for my son. Get another one. Here we go. Boom, 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 boom. Man. Hey, one more time, fam. One more time. Then it became, that's about for my kids and more about my pride. It was like, hold on, man. I'm getting ready, shoot another one. Shoot it. Miss. Look at my son like, I'll get you some ice cream, son. I'm sorry, son, I can't Asked the dude, one dude, I said, hey, how many people make these? He said, man, hardly ever. Because the rim is a little smaller than regulation size. I said, that's the hustle. That's the hustle. <laughs> and I was like, listen, it was important. It was important for me and my identity and my son's happiness to do this. Then it became important for me and my identity to make this thing. It's always about the identity. Always. And here they're discussing what is the identity of the Gentiles? Are they saved or not by this? Are they saved or not by this circumstances? And Peter says, Listen. There's no way. This is a yoke. You can't do it. I couldn't make the shot because the rim is too small. It's intentional. I could have shot 100 of them and probably missed all of them because they made it so the rim is small. What they do is they give the dudes who run the thing a smaller ball than they give you. So when you see them make it, you think, oh, shoot, his form is ugly. He shoot like Bill Cartwright. I know I can make it. But they give you a bigger ball. That's the hustle three called Monty. You see, you can't make it. It's too small. You can't. You, it's a yoke. I can't do it. They, you can't make these people do it. And so Peter says, listen, we got the same spirit they got, and they didn't, get, they didn't have to be circumcised. We need to get rid of it. It was a big issue. It was a big deal. This is fundamental to their unity, to their identity. So when Paul says this, when he says, listen, a person is, a, is not a Jew who is won outwardly by the circumcision, And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. That's a slap in the face. Then he says, on the contrary, a person who is a Jew, who is one inwardly. A person is not one who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart. Well, they had never heard that. They hadn't really heard that it was of the flesh. What do you mean of the heart? It's by the spirit, not the leather the letter being the law of Moses written down what are we talking about here well Paul is leveling the ground the Gentiles they can't be saved apart from Jesus because of their sins the Jews can't be saved apart from Jesus because of their sins it's level he lays it out nice Now, remember, he's building his case from Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to save and that the righteous live by faith. That's the the backdrop of everything he's saying. Look, I'm not ashamed to tell you this. Because Jesus dying on the cross is the power of God to save. And those who will be considered righteous are not those who are circumcised or those who think they can keep the law, but those who live by faith. So with that being in the backdrop, Paul knowing the significance of circumcision to the Jews, knowing that it would be confusing to them, and probably even discouraging.
1: discouraging
0: to hear, hey, all the ways you thought made you the people of God are null and void now.
1: It would be discouraging.
0: So he addresses it head on in chapter 3. He asks these rhetorical questions that he, exp- he plans to, exp- to explain. Beginning in one. here's what he says. So what advantage does the Jew have? Which is a logical question. If you're telling me as a Jew that I am no different than people who are not Jewish all this time for thousands of years we thought that's what made us different than them. Now you're telling me that we're no different than what was the point of circumcision in the first place? What's the point? He says, so what advantage did the Jews have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? These are his questions straight out of the scriptures. Verse two, he says it's considerable in every way. And he gives his first response. First, First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. That's his first answer. And actually, he doesn't even get to another answer just yet. He just says, they were entrusted with the very words of God. We'll come back to that in just a second. Then he says, what then? If some were unfaithful, would their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Basically, he's saying, he's paraphrased. I'm talking dumb right now. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim that we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Let me explain what he's saying right there. He's basically saying, people are so confused about grace. They're so confused about grace and being forgiven by simply the grace of God for having faith in Jesus Christ, who was punished for sins. He's saying that people are lying and saying that they're saying that we can sin because grace abounds. And he said their condemnation is deserved. That's not what we're saying at all. He understands that grace is not that amazing that you can just sin and do whatever, not care and expect, oh. You see, he has some words for his fellow Jews. There were some that actually thought this. These aren't questions that Paul is just thinking of. These are questions that we'll find out later on in the chapter. He has people there in the church. Word has gotten to him, and he's answering questions that people are actually asking. Or he's addressing sentiments that people actually have. You see, here's the problem. The people, and the Jews in particular, they had been in a privileged position because of what God had done for them, and because God chose them to be the people that he revealed his law to, so they felt like they were in a privileged position, and they were. But a common mistake of privilege is to see it solely as one's status. You see, when you think of privilege as just my status before God, that's an incomplete picture. Because from God's perspective, God used privilege not just as your status, but as your responsibility. So if you are privileged by God, then yeah, you have a status, but now you also have a responsibility. You see, Christians, we're not just saved from the flames of hell and that's it. We have a responsibility now. We have a responsibility. We're not just privileged as those who will spend eternity with God. We have a responsibility to persevere in the midst of to have joy in the midst of struggles, to worship God in a culture that doesn't. We, we have a responsibility to tell others to believe in this Jesus, to invite others into the kingdom that we are living for by faith. We have a responsibility. Our privilege is not just our status, it's a responsibility. And if we're honest, if we were to step away and evaluate what's happening in the church right now, this is the undergirding problem in the evangelical church right now. This is why we got into all this stuff about racism because there were people who had a privilege and other people said, but you're not living up to your responsibility. You have a privilege as those who lead institutions, the one who lead churches, and who have the influence and the culture, and you're not living up to your responsibility.
1: That's a lot of what's happening right now. And now there's pushback. Don't tell me I have privilege.
0: A lot. So this side gets offended. And they say dumb things because they're offended at people that God sovereignly gave privilege to. And then this side is offended that you're telling them they have responsibility to coincide with that privilege. Now we have the debacle in the church. It's over identity. It's over responsibility. And it's over status. And here we are arguing this and that. And then it moves over to politics. And it's all, it's all of this. And it's foolish because the responsibility that we have is to make sure God's name isn't blasphemed among the Gentiles. Paul is speaking to these issues. Paul undermines the sense of superiority by emphasizing responsibility. Your circumcision gave you a status. And you receiving the law of modus gave you a status greater than other people. And God sovereignly does that. Listen, here's the reality. God sovereignly allowed slavery to happen in America. He sovereignly let people who are white be the ones who are in control of this nation and very much drive it that way. He sovereignly allowed it to happen. That's why I've always said I hated the term white privilege because God gave people privilege. He let that happen. Whether we like it or not. Let that happen. And believe it or not, God's actually sovereign over abortion too. He's sovereign. You think He can't have that stop if He wanted it to stop right now? There's a greater purpose. God's doing something that we don't understand.
1: He's sovereign. Sovereign. If you believe that sort of thing, we're always
0: going to wrestle with what's our responsibility with the status that we're given. And because we're confused about that, we just argue. Argue. Loving your enemy seems soft, even though it's
1: fundamentally a part of what it means to be a believer. Responsibility comes with
0: status. Paul doesn't absolve the Gentile believers either, though. The Gentiles, they may have not known God and his law, but Paul remains adamant that the Gentiles could see evidence of God all around them and reject them. But they're in trouble too. You see what he's doing? At this point, Paul on an individual level, he's concerned that all people have false sin, but they don't, they're all struggling with that reality. He's concerned that all people have fallen short of God. Whether you heard God's law and you received it or you didn't, you've broken it. And so he wants them to understand, listen, in the military, I I haven't been there, but, you know, our pastor Mike has been there and I have other buddies that have gone there. And they say, I, I always ask, whenever someone goes to the military and they come back, you go to boot camp first and then you come back for a little bit before you go get stationed where you go. And the first question I always ask is, man, how was boot camp? That's the first question I want to know, because you just see movies and you heard stories and you just hear like you waking up at 3 a.m. with an 80-pound backpack in the rain, holding your rifle on a 10-mile joy. Everybody's all about everybody, and that's all you just imagine. It was just tough climbing walls you can't climb, people yelling in your face, saying they'll smack your mom and you can't say nothing. I mean, my brother went to the service. He said when he signed up to go to the Navy, my brother, when he called his first call home, I said, amen, how is it? He said, hey, don't go to the service. see. He said, it's not for you. And I said, why? He said, because you don't like people yelling in your face and you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you come here. My brother's real mild-mannered. He just—he was low-key. You could say what
1: happened. He just... You get in my face and be like, boy, I'll
0: do this to you. I'm going to look at you real quick. You Look at me, son. Sir, yes, sir. You're going to know I don't like it. So he was like, don't come. It's not for you. And I said, what is all that for? And I've heard people who work in the military say, you know what? We have to break this soldier down to build them back up to be a soldier. See, people come in with all kinds of baggage, all kinds of understanding, all kinds of expectations, and we have to make them a soldier. We have to train these people to actually pull a trigger if they need to at the enemy. We have to train people to take command and respond without question, without anything, because that could be the life or death moment. We have to train people on how to clean and fix their guns. And these people sometimes are 18, 19 years old, fresh out of high school, ain't been through nothing, ain't seen war ain't seen death, have never been exposed to the kind of discipline you need to be a soldier for the military so we got to break them down so we can build them back up to be a soldier. And this is what Paul is doing here. I need to break down your identity of who you think you are to build you back up in Christ. I need to break down your identity and thinking that God, because you didn't receive God, whether there should be grace for you. I need to break down your identity thing because you received God's word. It should be break for you. No, all of you have received the reality of the existence of God on different levels, and you're all responsible. Let me break that down so I can build you back up. And so he does that. He furthers that reality. He furthers that reality by making his way towards verse nine. Now, again, I'm not dipping into everything that could be said, right? We're at 20,000 feet here. There's a lot that he's saying in verses one through five. I'm going to, I'm not gonna get there, but this is what he's doing. He's he's breaking down the identity, and this is the final piece of that identity. Let me break it down so that I can build you back up in Jesus Christ. This is very much how the scripture is, right? We read a lot of the scripture tells us, but it just it, it adjusts us, it corrects us. And sometimes it's like, oh man, this is a tough word. It's like I need to break down the identity that you had and give you a new identity that you'll
1: need. So he starts to say
0: this in verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. But we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, are all under sin. As it is written, here's where he starts. This is it. He, He makes it clear, levels the ground for everyone. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no room. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their lying lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were subject to the law. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. But no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. This is the conclusion of the
1: comprehensive bad news.
0: We call the gospel, the gospel is translated good news. Good news can only be good if there's bad news. If there's no bad news, then there's really no good news. It's just news that you like or don't like. But when there's actually good news, that means there's actually bad news. And so the actual bad news is from beginning verse 118 in Romans to verse 320. It's this comprehensive reality that there is no one righteous before God. Meaning, if you're not righteous, when you stand before God, you will not make it to the place where God is. This is a comprehensive treatment of the bad news. And at this point, it's possible that those listening to this letter are
1: shaken. Well then what happened?
0: To, I know if I was there, I'd be like, man, hey. I'd probably raise my hand after he, I'd be like, hey, can you go back and read verses Romans 1, 1 through 15? Like, where is that Paul at? This is the dude that wants to come and and, and minister to us? I'm not as excited as I was a few moments ago. This is the dude that says he loves us and can't wait to see, this is what his love looks like? Everybody in the room just got their heads hit. No
1: one is righteous, not even one. It's the
0: comprehensive bad news. This comprehensive bad news wasn't just for them. It's for the culture that we live in. No one is righteous, not even
1: one. He's
0: made his case that everyone is guilty before God. You're guilty by either violating your own conscience or violating the law of God that was given to you. That's what he's saying. No one. And those are weird questions. People used to always ask, hey, so how is God going to judge people? Like, what the... people used to always ask this, what about the pygmies in Africa? I'd be like, man, you don't care about no pygmies in no Africa. Jimmy, what, what about the pygmies in Africa? You don't even know what they, you don't care about them. When's the last time you prayed for the pygmies in Africa? People don't care about, you know what I'm saying? They don't care about no pygmies in Africa. What about the pygmies in Africa? Will they be saved? It was like, how would they be saved if they don't hear about Jesus? Through pygmy dust. I don't know. What do you mean? It was like, nah, you know what? They're going to be saved because God knows the conscience of those people. He knows the law they kept on their hearts because He placed it within all humanity. And even their own morality, people's own morality, they break. So if God holds you to the standards of your own morality, you're still guilty. So even if you never heard of Jesus, when you stand before God, you heard of a morality. You knew this was wrong. Why did you do this? You knew that was wrong. Why did you do this? Even our own morality, we fell short to keep that. So this is the comprehensive bad news. It's for this world in Romans and it's for our world
1: in, in Riverdale.
0: But he does something amazing here though. He transitions from the comprehensive bad news to the comprehensive good news. Now he switches it. Now that frown is turned upside down. And he gets here beginning in verse 21. He says this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. This is where the mood is starting to lift. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith Not circumcision, not some other form of obedience, not just resisting cultural sins, not just thinking, well, I'm a good person, I haven't done. He says, is received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that we would be righteous and declare righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is, a, this, is a, this is a crazy explanation. He's saying like, God, because this is how significant Jesus Christ is. This one dude, that seemed like an ordinary man that people were like, this is the Messiah? Didn't, didn't he grow up with us? The same dude that couldn't do miracles in Nazareth because people didn't believe in him. This lowly guy who allowed himself to be taken into custody who told Peter, I can call legions of angels if I want. Says this guy, whom Peter says in Acts 2, this Jesus whom you crucified, this average Joe that you thought was an average Joe is actually something more significant. And by faith in him and his sacrifice, God will forgive the sins of all the people, all of the people
1: who have disobeyed God. Not just the Jews, not just the chosen ones, but all of the people in the entire world are covered
0: by this sacrifice. And this is so significant. And then he explains why God didn't do some of the things he could have done. We look at God, sometimes people look at God in the Old Testament and think, man, he did this at the third. Listen to what this passage says. In verse 25, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. You know what he's saying? Now, now think about this statement in light of the backdrop of what he just said—that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous. So that's the, the stand. He's he's not speaking from our understanding of rightness or righteousness. He's speaking from God's perspective. There is no one righteous. No one. They they have no fear of God in their eyes. Even the people that we think are righteous make decisions to sin that reveal there's no fear of God in their eyes. And so those people, even those people, it says God and his restraint passed over sins previously committed. Like God could have destroyed everyone until Jesus came and forgave. But he knew Jesus was coming, so he was able to have restraint towards people who were sinful. He could see something good Because he knew what was coming in Abraham, in Noah,
1: in in different people.
0: Verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So then where then is boasting? So if God is declaring people righteous because of faith in Jesus Christ, then where is the boasting
1: coming from? So to the
0: Gentiles, if you're a Gentile in this church, where's the boasting now that you're a Christian? Like you're not better than the Jews because now you're a Christian. Remember, the Jews were kicked out of Rome for five years. They were kicked out from A.D. 49 to around A.D. 54. When they come back to Rome, there's a church there largely filled with Gentiles. Now the Jews are now coming back and they're doing this church together. So this letter is written to both Jews and Gentiles. And Jews can be self-righteous towards Gentiles because they're the chosen people of God. And so they have a moral superiority. And the Gentiles can be self-righteous because you were the ones that rejected Jesus and we believed in him. So they have a moral superiority. And Paul is saying the only superiority is Jesus. And the only reason why you have any blessing and and anything is because of Jesus. So where is the boasting then?
1: Where is the boasting? For me,
0: this is one of the things that I look at today and I, I ask the same question. Where then is the boasting? You know, people who are a little bit more reformed in their, you know, theological framework are often dubbed as like, self-righteous, like angry, like people. And I see it a lot, quick to condemn people who are Arminian or whatever. And I just have always wondered, man, if you really believe in like, say, the doctrine of election that God chose before the foundation of the world, that means you, right?
1: So where does the self-righteousness come from? In the fact that you're chosen? Based on
0: God's free grace? Like, I don't understand where it comes from. Or if you're, if you have, this is what I call platform epistemology. Platform epistemologians are people who have a large platform and everyone thinks because they have a bigger platform, they're of greater importance. Remember when, when Jesus said to the Peter and the disciples, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich to be saved? And they were like, Peter was like, well, who then can be saved? Because in their minds, they thought that being rich was a blessing from God and not being rich was a curse. And God said, nah, God doesn't measure status by that. He measures it differently than that. Like the rich actually struggle with being saved because they have what they need. The people who who you think are the ones that have the, it's the same way today. We think everybody that has a bigger platform is like, oh, they're, They're this and that. I've read their books. They got these Twitter followers. They got this and got that. So what? I mean, ultimately, we don't know what happened to people, but I I bet people's attitude definitely changed about Robbie Zacharias after he died. It's like, we don't, like, where's the boasting at? Like, all of us, I don't care who your favorite theologian is, all of us, all of us fall short of the glory. doesn't matter if you're on the conservative right. You fall short of the glory of God. If you're on the liberal left and you think you got it figured out because you love people more and equity more and equality more, you fall short of the glory of God. We all do. The ground is leveled. There is no conservative and liberal in Christianity. There's believers or unbelievers.
1: And we're all
0: worthy of the wrath of God
1: apart from
0: the free faith given by Jesus Christ. So Paul asks, where is the boasting? And he answers it. It is excluded.
1: By what kind of law? By one of works?
0: No. On the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. By the law, it just means apart. The works of the law is always meaning trying to live out the Mosaic law. And we talked about that last message, 10 commandments, the whole uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or all the moral law, including Proverbs and Psalms and all of it. Then listen, no one is exempt because no one can actually keep that perfectly.
1: He says, verse 28, for we
0: conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? And he answers his own question, yes, of Gentiles. So if, if, if faithfulness to God is measured by the law, well, he only gave the law to a, a, a small group of people in, in the scope of humanity. The Jews were a small group of people, even in their vicinity. When well, they went to the land of Canaan, they were small. When, in, 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 in Judges chapter 6, the story of Gideon. When Gideon goes to war with three hundred people, three hundred people versus an army of hundreds—I think it was tens of thousands—is three hundred people. And that that scene is a microcosm. By that I mean a small picture of how Israel was to the surrounding nations. They were a relatively small group of people compared to the number of people that were around them. And this small group of people could defeat this big army because God was with them. But if God is only judging people by the the ones he gave the law to, then only this small group of people he is the God over because he gave them the law. But he's saying, no, 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 no. I gave the law to you, but I gave Jesus to everyone. It's a difference.
1: I gave you the law, but I gave Jesus to everyone. The world. For God so loved the
0: world, not the Jews, that he gave his only begotten son. He gave the law to the Jews, but he gave Jesus to everyone. And he said, is God the God of the Gentiles too? Yes. Yes, of course. Verse 30. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In other words, and this is a huge one, this is, he, and he makes the point. saying, do we then say, okay, well then because of faith, we don't keep the law? And he said, no, 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 no. Not at all. We uphold it. Like the fact that because it's a circumcision of the heart, it means that I, my desire, like it's not just like I've been cut physically. I've been cut. He's saying, no, I've been cut. In Acts 2, read it when you get a chance again. After Peter is preaching to them from the book of Joel, it uses this phrase. And the people that heard him were cut to the heart. That's what it describes. That's a perfect analogy. Perfect visual illustration of what God is talking about. They were cut to the heart. They understood in that moment, man, they're right. We've sinned against God like we're, we're culpable before God. They were cut to the heart. That's what real circumcision does.
1: Genuine Christians are cut to the heart.
0: Genuine Christians don't go out and riot because somebody was killed by police and, and caused ruckus. Doesn't mean they don't care. Doesn't even mean they don't protest. They don't riot. Because you're cut to the heart. You don't do that. And if you do, man, you better repent. You better come back and ask for forgiveness. That's not what we do. We don't storm the Capitol and then pray and invoke the name of Jesus. We don't steal lecterns and we don't celebrate that. We don't put our politics over our politics.
1: It's not what we do. doesn't mean we don't care. It's just not what we do. The only side that we should care about is the
0: one that went, the spear that went in Jesus. That's the side that we care about. That's the side I want to care more about. The side that had the spear that went in Christ. And blood and water came out. That's the side I'm on. I'm on that side. I want to be on the side of the spear that went in Jesus and the blood and water coming out. Paul is laying out this reality for the Jewish people, for the Gentile people, that everyone, everyone is in the same place before Jesus And then everyone is in the same place when they believe in Jesus. Redeemed, justified by God. Justification is when God declares people who are guilty not guilty because they believe in Jesus. Crazy. You and I will stand before God, and we're going to be aware of the ways that we failed. Remember in Revelation 1 when John, whom Jesus loved, he saw Jesus, he dropped to the ground. That that was too much glory for him to handle. And the Spirit had to pick him back up. You and I will not be unaware of our failings when we stand before God. I believe so. But we will be more aware of his grace
1: to forgive us. And that we will be
0: blown away because we know we deserve his wrath, because we've fallen short. But we're going to be in inexpressible joy because we've received his grace. And then we're going to receive rewards. Can you imagine?
1: Can you imagine that God is going to reward us for things
0: that He did in us that we wouldn't have done without him, and then say, You can have this because you did this. I don't get it. There's aspects of grace I just don't understand.
1: I don't understand it. I don't, I mean, I could see,
0: actually, I can't. I was going to say, I could see maybe. Maybe us being forgiven by him giving us faith and then us, but I don't understand how we're going to be rewarded for the things that we wouldn't have done unless his spirit compelled us
1: to do. That I don't understand.
0: That's on a level that we just overlook or don't think about because we're kind of distracted by the gifts and stuff that we do have that we don't think about what we will have because we don't see it. It's hard to understand it. But I just, I don't understand that one. When you read this passage and you think, man, I'm right there in falling short of the glory of God. No fear of God in my eyes. I'm right there. And then you see, well, actually,
1: we're not.
0: Chapter three is essentially stating that all people have sinned against God. And because of that, no one can say that their obedience is worth anything unless it is faith in Jesus Christ, whose obedience is worth everything. No one's obedience is worth anything unless they have faith in Jesus Christ, whose obedience is worth
1: everything. And because of this good news, There's no reason to boast apart from Jesus is the way. He's the God of the Jews. He gave the Jews the law, but he gave the the world the Lord. And that's why we love one another. That's why we increase in the knowledge.
0: obedience of the Lord. That's why we connect with our community. That's why we serve. That's why we give. Because we worship a God who humbled himself to serve, who gave his life for our benefit and for those around us. And we don't know who they are yet, but we can find out if we're actually sharing the kingdom with others and attempting to do so. What an incredible God we serve. And it just gets better and better as he lays out, which we'll pick up next week in chapter four.
1: Father, we thank you for the reality of
0: this your grace towards us. There's, There's so much in your word. I mean, I didn't even delve deep into chapter three that much, in the end of chapter two. We just scratched the surface and yet your word is is significant enough that even a surface rendering of it can give us
1: a sustaining reality from it. I pray as we
0: process the world that we live in and we think about sides and perspectives and different things and we, do, we not let that be divided. It's not that we can't have opinions or have perspective but those are, our, our identity is not functionally what we believe or who we agree with. Our identity is, is who we have faith in which is you Jesus. We're all trying to shoot in a small basket with a big
1: ball to win a prize that we're never going to win. but I pray that you would help
0: us and sustain us and give us the joy that we need. Help us to be grateful for our salvation. Help us to, be, to remember our first love. I thank you that you've led us back to Romans at this particular time so that we can get back into the mind and the theological framework of this book so that it permeates our minds, the theology in our minds. and It, it continues to help our theology and reality meet. May that be the case as we continue to march on. May that be the case as we observe where we live. May that be the case as we look up more often than we look out. For your glory and for our
1: good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.